On the one hand, the words that I just read speak for themselves. And I see no reason to unpack in detail the horrors depicted in this text. The sin on display is intentionally and unavoidably striking to all with eyes and ears. And if we came to this episode, if, we, uh, if this were in the movie, if, if this were in a book other than Scripture, we might simply be tempted just to stop watching or to put the book down or to skip through that part and turn to the next chapter. But we can't do that. We shouldn't do that. Because this is, after all, the inspired word of the Lord. And it is here for important reasons. We mustn't, therefore, be ashamed that it is here. We we certainly shouldn't try to rationalize it or minimize it. It isn't less inspired. It isn't less authoritative. It isn't less spiritually useful than, say, John 3.16, that opening verse for our call to worship this morning. In fact, this text contributes to the dark background that makes so gracious a verse as John 3.16. It's hard to look sin in its ugly face, especially when it is your own sin, especially when it is the church's sin. It's hard to look sin square in its face. But overlooking the sin, ignoring it, avoiding it, minimizing it, is actually the opposite of what we are called to do in this text. In fact, God's people, we're told here at the very end, are called to expose the horrors of sin and the hospitality of our Father in heaven. Look again with me at verse 1. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. This is truly a horrifying episode of the rape and murder of an Israelite woman by a gang of thugs in a Benjaminite town. Recall that these final chapters, chapters 17 through 21, detail events that predated the first judge, Othniel. Remember, judges 17 and 18 detailed Micah and a Levite and Dan, the tribe. And now 19 through 21 focuses on one tribe in particular, Benjamin. The sin in Benjamin, in a particular area in Benjamin, Gibeah, how Benjamin handles it, and how Israel addresses how Benjamin handles it. And then a remedy for the problem that Israel and Benjamin found themselves in. And there's mention of In the next chapter, chapter 20, there's mention of a Phineas. You recall him. He's the grandson of Aaron. So this chapter tells tells us we're going back to that time before the judges. The story seems to begin on a somewhat tender note, doesn't it? We have an Israelite young lady who is given to this Levite as his concubine. We have mention of a Levite, and this Levite is not the same Levite that we just saw in the previous chapters. There are many Levites. But as a Levite, he is to picture holiness. That's what the book of Leviticus is all about, isn't it? It's holiness to the Lord. So here's a Levite, and we're we're supposed to ask the question, is this Levite imitating holy ways? Is he imitating his Lord? Not only is he a Levite, he's also from Ephraim. And as we have 
seen throughout the book of Judges, the Ephraimites are the leaders. They're the ones who want all the action. They're the ones who are inflamed when they haven't been invited to the action. They love to lead. And so, again, the question is, is this Levite leader a holy authority? Is he a holy leader? Is he leading in godliness? Is his conduct exemplary? Well, the test of his character is seen in his concubine's infidelity. We see from the very beginning that she commits adultery. Now, what will happen to her in the following verses is unspeakably wicked. It is abominable. It is inexcusable. At the same time, this episode of sinfulness all begins with this infidelity. Her infidelity is the occasion for all that takes place. Now, hear me. This is not to say that she gets what she deserves. I am not saying that she gets what she deserves. In fact, as we see in the very beginning, she doesn't get what she deserves. But it is to say that throughout this whole chapter, everyone, seemingly everyone, is stained by sin. Everyone, even this concubine, is a sinner. This is graphic sin. So this adulterous woman flees to her father, surely out of shame but perhaps also out of fear. Why would she fear? Well, the Levitical law in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, says that the death penalty is the course of action. She should have died. She should have, she should have been stoned to death by committing adultery. But this Levite goes to her. He doesn't seek her to drag her home and then to have her killed, but he seeks her that she might be restored. He speaks tenderly to her. He even gives her good gifts. He desires to woo her. He desires to forgive her, to cause her to come back into his household, having left for four months. In this way, then, and at this point only, the Levite here images for us the love that the Lord has for faithless Israel. We've seen time and again in this book how faithless Israel is. And here we have a graphic depiction of the faithlessness, of the infidelity of Israel in general. At the same time, we have seen time and again, have we not, how God is unceasingly loving to his people. He lavishes his love upon his people, chapter after chapter. Yes, there are hard things that are said in every chapter, and yet God is still there with them. God still preserves them. God still cares for them. He has still given them the means of grace. He has not left them, nor has he forsaken them. So we see, on the one hand, the infidelity of Israel through this Levite and his concubine, and at the same time, the love that the Lord has for his people. And this love is seen in hospitality. There are glimmers of hope throughout this story seen in hospitality. There's a welcomeness. There is the father's hospitality. Now, this would be the concubine's father, or sometimes it says the father-in-law, so that would be the father-in-law of the Levite. This father-in-law we see here is glad to see the Levite come after these four months. Maybe he was wondering why this Levite hasn't come. Or maybe he's been wondering, if the Levite does come, will this Levite come to have his concubine, the father's daughter, killed? 
So he's pleased to see the Levite come and want to take back his daughter, the Levite's wife. And it's in these verses that we see hospitality, real hospitality, and almost embarrassingly so, almost annoyingly so. The father is pleased to have this man and his daughter stay for days and days. The dad says, take a load off, eat, drink, and be merry. Spend the night and do it again. The father urges them to stay. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. He would have urged them to stay until Levi put his foot down. And that he did. Finally, on day five, the Levi says, no, it's time for us to go. Appreciate the hospitality, but now we must leave. And there's this comedian from the Midwest who gives us all an idea of Midwest hospitality. He shows an Irish guest how to say goodbye after spending hours at a house party. And you can't just say goodbye, apparently. You can't just say, thanks for the time. These six hours were wonderful, and now I'm out of here. can't do that. Apparently, through this comic, comical skit here, you have to sit down next to the host, slap your knee, and say, well, I suppose and then head on out. Well, it turns out that this Midwest goodbye is actually no goodbye at all. And the guest now is sucked into the vortex of hospitality from which he will never get out. And eventually the guest has no interest in leaving and suddenly has an urge to stay and even ask the homeowner about the recent purchase of a lawnmower. See how it works. The father in our story is pleased to have these two stay as long as he would have them. And so he pictures for us our Heavenly Father's hospitable heart. At the same time, he pictures for us, this event pictures for us our own occasional reluctance to receive his overwhelming grace. You might say, well, Lord, you're you're laying on pretty thick, aren't you? It's too much kindness. I need to Earn some of that, don't I? No. Stay in my presence. Eat and drink. Be merry. And do it again. In fact, you wake up, and what await you are new mercies every morning. Our Father in heaven never tires, nor is he ever ashamed of showering us with his grace. That's what John tells us in in John 1, that Christ comes. He came to give us grace upon grace upon grace. No sooner does one manifestation of grace begin end than another begins. One after the other, one after the other, new mercies. All coming from the hospitable heart of our Father in heaven. As we continue the story, we see that after they leave, they head to this land, Gibeah, which is in Benjamin. They avoid Jebus. Jebus is the uh, foreign territory at this time. It's later to be called Jerusalem. And these men reason charitably that Gibeah of Benjamin would be the spot to lodge. After all, they are one of us, they think. Surely, those in Gibeah, those in this area of Benjamin, surely they will be hospitable towards us. We are one of them. They are one of us. We are from the same cloth that is Israel. But they get there, and they find that there is no place for them to stay. There's out there in the open square. No one had a kindness 
to bring them into his own home. They have no place to stay. Until, that is, an old man approaches them. But this man was not a Benjaminite. He was instead a fellow Ephraimite, what the Levite was, lodging in Gibeah for a time and because of work. The man says to him, I'll take care of you. I'll give you lodging. Just don't stay here in the open square. Just get out of this area. Come, come quickly, and I will take care of you. And he pronounces peace upon them. He feeds their donkeys. He has their, the feet of his guests washed. He gives them food and drink. He provides them a place of safety, of sleep, hospitality. And here we have then another example of the guest helping out the guest. It's an Ephraimite helping out another Ephraimite in a land that is not either of theirs. Now, this church community is full of travelers. We have probably, most of us have visited a lot of churches just because we are traveling or you've been deployed and come back and get stationed elsewhere. And you're trying out churches. Have you ever noticed that sometimes when you try a new church, you attend a new church, you're talking to someone, it's ingrained in that conversation, you say, wow, this is, this, is a, this is a cool person. I love talking with this person. And you say to the person, well, how long have you been a member here? And they say, I've only attended like two weeks. Oh. It's a warm, such a warm heart of this guest. Sometimes there are churches that we attend that we're not welcomed by any of the church members. But we're welcomed by the guest, like we have here. Surely, all of us can grow in our efforts at being genuinely hospitable, our efforts at being truly loving to others. The application point here in this section is that true hospitality welcomes godliness and keeps guests from sin. The father-in-law was glad that this Levite wanted to be restored to his unfaithful daughter. This old Ephraimite man wanted to ensure that this Levite and his concubine were free of danger. And so both of them urged, insisted, pressed, the text says, insisted on hospitality because godliness was at stake. Insisted on hospitality because also sin lurked in the shadows. This old man from Ephraim knew what was going to come out of those houses at night. In Romans 12, 13, Paul tells us to show hospitality. And that word show can mean to pursue hospitality. Or even it's used in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 10 about persecution. That we are blessed when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So just as fervently and tenaciously as the enemies of God persecute the people of God, should we, the people of God, pursue hospitality one with another and with guests, with visitors? We need to be hospitable people. Welcome, of course, fundamentally, the gospel in our own hearts. And then welcome others because of the gospel. This doesn't mean laying on thick every single time you see a visitor, forcing them to go through the five questions that everyone else has asked. Though that is a sign, too, if there's more than one person who's approaching. It's a sign that there's a willingness to come and see. You don't need to greet them with those insistent but scary eyes. We're really glad you're here. Will you stay with us forever? Calm down. We don't need to be like that. But we can be genuinely attentive, truly interested in that person. 
What brings you here? Talk about mutual interests. Maybe even strike up a relationship. Go out to coffee. Maybe there's a present need that you can meet right then. Maybe there's a traveling. Maybe somebody's traveling and you don't want that person to have to eat on the Lord's Day. Uh, go to a restaurant. You say, hey, I got a meal already. Will you come and eat with us? Just ways to, to meet needs, ways, ways to demonstrate real hospitality. And why do we do this? Because we are taking our cues from our God. Our God who has pursued us with genuine love. Our God, because of his hospitable heart, cares for us, is patient with us, greets us in the name of Christ, his Son, and has given us great gifts, the greatest gifts of all the gifts. He's given us his only begotten Son. The Son has welcomed us. The Father has welcomed us. The Spirit has welcomed us. And so we welcome others. Now, part of me wishes we could stop right here. And perhaps you do too, because then the sermon will be over. But no. The text has more to share. Verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And so we see that even this old Ephraimite wasn't a paragon of hospitality, wasn't the prime example of a hospitable heart. Where the Levite servant had urged them to stay, remember it was Jebus, just three miles south of Gibeah, for the sake of our sensibilities, we wish that the Levite would have listened to his servant, but he didn't. With the mention of these worthless men, we are taken back to Abimelech's worthless men, his inhospitable men who terminated, who ended the lives of the sons of Gideon, all but one. And now another band of worthless men surrounds this old man's house and beats on it. And the Hebrew language is actually much stronger than we have here. It's literally that they are hurling themselves against the door. They're throwing themselves against the door. You can even picture them having a a run up against the door and just trying to crash it down. They are pushing each other out of the way and trying to drive down this door. that They might know the man in an unholy union. This is truly a frightening experience. Some of us know the terror of just one person, one person showing up at night, maybe trying the doors, trying a window, trying to get in. That's frightening. But here we have a whole city of its men trying to get down this door that they might get to this guy. But what about this Levite? This Levite, this Levite who is supposed to image the Lord's love for Israel. His concubine was unfaithful, granted, inexcusable. She should not have committed adultery. But his tragic treatment of her is criminal. Do you see that? Does this man throw himself in front of these wicked men, keeping his now reconciled woman away from danger? Does he sacrifice his life for her in the face of this danger? If someone has to go, it's got to be this guy. It can't be this concubine. It can't be the, the virgin of this, uh, of this old man Ephraimite. 
Can't be, any of them. So as we read the story, we're disgusted by the sin. Yes, this homosexual sin is disgusting. But you notice that they actually knew her and violated her. It was more about shaming the people than about engaging in homosexual lust. So we are disgusted by the sin. We lament even the predicament. We would never want to be found in this spot. At the same time, we root for this man to give up his life for this woman to whom he had spoken so tenderly just moments before, just the day before. For watching this in the movie, we say, you go. Get out there and fight off as many as you can and die. That's what we would want this man to do. And that's actually how he could better reflect Christ. But no. He gives her up, and he throws her out like a piece of meat to ravenous wolves. And we recall in Genesis, in Jacob's blessing to his 12 sons, he calls Trevor Benjamin ravenous wolves. This man is cruel. This man is calloused. He is cowardly. He is a pitiful picture of a man, any single man. And he certainly doesn't measure up to the man, Jesus Christ, the true lover of Israel. Unlike Hosea, he throws his gomer to Gomorrah. This is unimaginable wickedness. And after it's all done, she's at the threshold of this door. And he says, get up, let's go. She appears lifeless. He picks her up. He puts her on the donkey that was his gift to her. He divides her limb by limb. And remarkably, do you see in this text that it doesn't even tell us at what point he does this. And so we're left to wonder, does he do this while there is still dear breath in her heart? Or when her soul has departed? For this Levi, it doesn't matter. She's as good as dead, whether she really is. Verse 30. And all who saw it, such, it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. So this depravity connects with Sodom and Gomorrah and even goes beyond it, doesn't it? When, you, when we read Genesis 19 earlier today and Judges 19, the parallels are obvious. We are supposed to connect them. The author here is telling us Genesis 19 and now they are, they are intimately related. We have men in the open square who need hospitality. We have houses surrounded. We have homosexuality pervading the city. Women offered, in, offered to these men to satiate the lust of these men. And then there is destruction. But if you thought that Sodom and Gomorrah was bad, and it was, this is much worse. How is it much worse? On two accounts. Here, there is no deliverance. Here, there is no angel to the rescue. You recall in Genesis 19, the angel said, up, let's go, and got him out of the city. There was the up of rescue. But here, there isn't an up of deliverance, but an up of stoicism, of unfeeling. Get up, let's go. But what makes this even worse is that here is at least part of the Old Testament church playing 
the part of the world. Church has become Sodom in this town. It says here that everyone was doing what is right in his own eyes. But who is every man in this text? It isn't every Philistine. It isn't every Canaanite, every Ammonite, every Amorite, every otherite. It is every Israelite in this town. Every covenantal man was doing what was right in his own eyes. Here is everyone that is externally connected to the covenant doing things that would make us blush, that we are repulsed by, that have no room in the covenant. Here is self-rule that has given full reign to lust, which lust only destroys lives. Here is graphic evidence of the need for a godly king to rule. The brief application point then here is, without the grace of God, the church is the world. Without the grace of God, the church is the world. In fact, there is no church. There's just world without the grace of God. The distinguishing mark between the church and the world is one word, grace. I'm not talking about the the common uh, grace that God our Father gives upon all, as the rain falls upon the just and the unjust. No, we're talking about saving grace, the grace by which we are saved. Grace in Christ, in Christ alone. That is what separates us from the world. The love of Christ. The kingship of Christ. That is what separates. Christ is what separates us from the world. You are not what separates you from the world. Whatever good works you think you did before you came into the church, before you came to Christ, those are not what separate you from the world. Those are just manifestations of worldliness, but it looked like godliness, denying the power thereof. Grace, which is a gift. It is not your doing. It is not your giving. It is God's giving of His Son. That is what distinguishes us from the world. That and that alone is what we boast about. And so what do we do with this grace? We don't use it to then live in sin, but to kick it out. The truly hospitable are inhospitable towards sin. Light and darkness are not friends. Christ and Belial are not buds. The Spirit's temple, that is the church, is never to be on good terms with the very thing that moved Christ to the cross to shed his own blood for the church. Look at the last part of verse 30. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. There was no original punctuation in the Hebrew, and so translators try to figure out where the quotation marks go. And it might be six of one, half dozen of the other, but I'm of the opinion that the quotation marks, the end, go after day. And so what we have here would be the author of Judges 
stepping out of the story and exhorting the reader, us, to consider it, take counsel, and to speak. This Levite sends his concubine's corpse to every tribe of Israel. Why does he do that? Next week, we will see Israel's response to the tribe of Benjamin for Gibeah's crime. But here, we see that Judges 19 is a graphic illustration of Ephesians 5.11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Consider. Consider the time of inhospitality. Consider the time of abuse, of sexual immorality gone wild. Consider that these men of Gibeah had no hearts that welcomed the gospel. Their hearts were hardened. They were homosexual, they were shameful, and they were full of violence. And the call for all of Israel was to take the time to reflect on the wickedness of the time. There was no king in the land, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Consider it. But also take counsel, confer, decide what to do by publishing the no-name woman's body for all of Israel to see And consider, the Levite wanted them to do more than consider, more than reflect on the evil. Don't just think about the evil. Figure out what to do about the evil. Action is in order. Steps must be taken. We cannot let this abomination go unaddressed. No truly godly leader would allow this kind of thing to go unaddressed. No father would allow this thing to happen to his daughter and say, let bygones be bygones. Water under the bridge. No. Confer, decide what to do, and speak up. He wants Israel to act justly, but also to speak up clearly against these depraved sins. He has spoken up. And how? By publishing to all the effect of Gibeah's crime. Wherever wherever Israel sees this and similar sins, they are called upon to act and to speak against it. Dear ones, our call is the same. The church exposes sin and calls everyone to the remedy for sin. Brothers and sisters, have you considered our cultural moment, our time? It'd be hard not to consider it. It is so daily in our faces. Even if you had one social media app and you avoided all others, even if you just had a a paper newspaper, you would would see where we are at this point. Ignorance is not bliss. Not for the church anyway. For For the wicked it is, but not for the church. Turning a blind eye to all the spiritual blindness And the havoc that the spiritually blind wreaks on the world and the church is part of the problem. Not being strong enough, not being courageous enough is our contribution to the problem. We don't make anyone sin. But our actions or inactions certainly can make things worse. And too many times, as I've preached from this pulpit, too many times we've seen our own brothers and sisters, our own various denominations, not being strong in the Lord to speak against sin. And they think that they are being winsome. They think that they are being gentle and loving, but they're not. And why aren't they? Because they are denying the Savior. They are pointing out 
They're not pointing out the sin, so they don't even have a remedy for it. And it is grievous. It is hard to be exposed to the hard times, to the horrifying sins that some in our culture commit. And as parents, we need wisdom to know when to allow our children to be exposed to different things. But we know there are many sins, sins of abortion, physical, sexual abuse, all manner of sexual sin. It's rampant. And I will not betray any confidences, but Cross Creek is not immune to these and other sins. In our history, people have become members. And you know what? They come with various stories of sins that they have committed, of sins that have committed against them. So we should be open about considering the wickedness of the time. And why? So that we can then take counsel and act wisely. We have the word of God to direct us. We have marching orders given in the scriptures. So we can hear the suffering that our brothers and sisters in Christ have gone through. And we don't need to be ashamed to hear their stories that are not always clean, not spotless, they're not always full of flowers. We don't need to just put on appearances. Everyone knows that we're all sinners. You're not fooling anyone. I'm not fooling anyone. We all know that we're all sinners. And there's counsel in the Word of God to share with these people who have suffered, who have sinned, to share with them the beautiful grace of God. And so we can hear stories of our brothers and sisters who have sinned and who have suffered greatly. Of those who have sinned, we, we, don't have to be, uh, we don't have to be unaware that not everyone was graced with a boring testimony. It is the minister's prayer at every baptism of an infant that never will, this, never, will be, never will there be a day that this person doesn't know the Lord. We pray that this person will always know the Lord. Always. But that isn't the experience of everyone. And if we were a little bit more hospitable, maybe more would open up to us and share the hard things. Because that's what we want, right? It's real relationships with people. To come alongside them to hear how God has so powerfully graced their hearts and has worked from that time of suffering, from that entrenched sin, has worked wonders, marvelous grace of our loving Lord. And we can also speak up. We can speak up to one another. We can speak up to the elders. If we have influence in different spheres, we can speak up there. Husbands and wives can speak with each other about their respective walks with the Lord. Ask ask each other the hard questions. Parents should have those hard, awkward conversations with their their children. They are hard. They are awkward. And be specific. Not just, hey, how you doing with the Lord? Hey, I'm doing all right, Dad. I'm doing all right. All right. Just check that box. What 
What are you looking at? How are you spending your time? How are, how are you with this relationship? What's going on here? Friends and singles should keep each other accountable and ask the hard questions. Gossip and slander are never the way of communicating issues. But Matthew 18 guides our steps on how to address sin. I'll ask you this question next week too. But how bad must the sin be before we expose it? To the point of apparent no return. Dear ones, pray. Pray for your own heart. Pray that the Lord would help you to see your own sin. It's a prayer of mine. The Lord would humble me, cause me to see where I have sinned. It should be the prayer for all of us, shouldn't it? Because we want to grow in godliness. Pray for your own heart. Pray for the hearts of your brothers and sisters. Oh, Lord, open their eyes. Use me if need, if need be, but open their eyes. Cause them to see where they've gone wrong. But why? So they can stay there and just knowing that they are wrong? Of course not. So they can see the remedy. Forgiveness, true forgiveness. True transformative power from the Spirit. Of course, pray for your family, friends. Pray for the church, this church, all churches. Pray, of course, for those who are right now enemies to Christ. The Lord would cause them to see where they, are, where they are at this time before him as judge of all the earth. Cause them to see that they might see Jesus. Pray and promote the grace of the gospel every chance you get. Proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ whose death was published and sent to all of Israel, calling everyone to look upon the Christ, to see the wickedness of their own sins, and to see the beauty of his grace. Look upon the only begotten Son of God, whose death was proclaimed not only to the Jew, but also to the Gentile, that you might find fullness of redemption in his perfect death. There is no excuse for the horrors and heinousness of your and my sins. There is no excuse for them but there is grace for them. There is mercy for them. There is atonement for them. There is Christ for them. Such is the hospitable heart of our Father in heaven who gave his Son to the world. Such is the hospitable heart of the Son who tabernacled among us and says, come into me, my Father's house. Such is the hospitable heart of the Holy Spirit who graciously indwells all those who would trust in Christ, and by so indwelling, converting these hearts of darkness into hearts of light, of love, of holiness, hospitality. I know no greater news than that for sinners. Do you? Let's pray. Our beautiful God, we thank you for seeing the beauty of your grace even in so dark a text as Judges 19. We thank you that we had glimpses of your hospitable heart. And we see at the same time a call to consider sin and to bring, uh, to point out to people the remedy for the sin, the cross of Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen.